1: Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce Mark Carney. In
0: 2015, Mark Carney, who at the time was running the Bank of England, gave a speech at Lloyds Bank.
1: Thank you very much, John. That is an extremely generous introduction and it is a tremendous honour for me to be here. Bear with me. I'm going to give you a speech without a joke, I'm afraid.
0: I know this doesn't sound like a particularly thrilling evening, the video shows a bunch of central bankers, insurance brokers in the City of London. And the speech doesn't start out that inspiring.
1: Well, the classic problem in environmental economics is the tragedy of the commons. And the solution to that lies in property rights and supply management.
0: But then it takes a turn. But
1: climate change is a tragedy of the horizon.
0: That there. That's a pretty big moment in the history of central banking. It was a major speech by the sitting head of a major central bank, and it mentioned climate change. It suggested that it might be something that central bankers should be thinking about.
1: The policy horizon for monetary policy extends out two to three years. And for financial stability, it's a bit longer, but at its extreme, it's out to a decade, which is the extreme of the credit cycle. In other words, once climate change becomes a defining issue for financial stability, it may already be too late.
0: Up until that moment, dealing with the threat of a warming planet was generally seen as the responsibility of democratically elected politicians. It didn't really seem to be in the remit of apolitical central bankers. Mr Carney suggested that that way of thinking was wrong.
1: An abrupt resolution to the tragedy of the Horizons is in itself a financial stability risk. And the more that we invest with foresight, the less we will regret in hindsight.
0: Mr Carney mentioned lots of different types of risk posed by climate change, but he left one out. He didn't mention the risks of acting to central banks themselves. You are listening to Money Talks from The Economist our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Sumeya Keynes, and today's show will be the first in a two-part series on the future of central banking. In this episode, we'll look at why central banks have expanded their remit so far beyond their core objective of maintaining price stability.
2: Both climate change and inequality are serious challenges for politicians and quite intractable ones, things that involve making difficult choices. And so it starts to seem attractive to put those responsibilities onto central banks and make them think about how to solve these problems as well.
0: And we'll drill deeper into the dicey politics of combining monetary policy and climate change.
3: I worry about the next generation of policymakers who have to go through a nomination and confirmation process saying, you've got to be kidding. Like, look what they did to Sarah Bloom Raskin. There's like no way I would go through that. And we'll
0: ask, does the expanding role of central banks pose a threat to their independence? And what about the stability of the global financial system? Central banks are hugely powerful actors in the economy. Today, there are questions, questions we are going to examine in this show about how they should wield that power. To understand what's going on, it helps to understand how we got here. Our finance editor, Rachna Scharnberg, is going to get us up to speed. Ever since the 17th century, when the first central banks
2: were set up in Sweden and England, their roles have evolved, often after crises.
1: New York and the British financial delegation arrives at LaGuardia airfield to begin talks on the US loan. We have got to go carefully in order to avoid inflation. September the 15th was the day the bank imploded, causing stock markets around the world to collapse.
2: Their traditional jobs include maintaining price stability and financial stability. America's central bank, the Federal Reserve, was founded in 1913, partly to prevent bank runs. What has changed more often is the expectation that central banks should help the government of the day fulfil other objectives. During the Second World War, central banks in the rich world were drafted to help with the war effort and keep government borrowing costs
1: low. As Mrs Roosevelt says... I'm glad that it does not have to be subscribed for as a war loan that we can say we are buying the bonds to further the cause of peace.
2: In emerging markets, they came to resemble national development banks. You can thank central banks for your holiday in Cancun. There were tourist resorts there that were financed by Mexico's central bank. High inflation in the 1960s and 1970s challenged the close relationship between governments and central banks. In America, high inflation calls for interest rate rises. But President Richard Nixon didn't want to hurt the economy.
1: Uh, We are tightening up on the Federal Reserve. We are. uh, Arthur Burns is in, in his independent capacity, with the board members are, I should say.
2: The episode showed what happens when politicians stop central bankers from doing what needs to be done to keep inflation under control. That all changed in America in the early 1980s. That's when Fed Chairman Paul Volcker exerted the Fed's independence and sharply increased interest rates to tame inflation. Unfortunately, that meant provoking a recession.
3: Let me say, I think we all face the job of getting the economy on a sustainable non-inflationary path, and I have... But it
2: worked. ...always... Over the following decades, as central banks around the rich world gained more independence, they were remarkably successful in keeping prices stable.
1: There's a lot of credibility that the Fed has built up over the last 30 years or so, and as a result, uh, markets have been confident that the Fed will keep inflation low, and inflation expectations have stayed low, and uh, except for some swings up and down related to uh, oil prices, um, overall, inflation has been uh, quite low and stable. So successful
2: that they've been given new, more complicated tasks, which has meant that the balance between governments and central banks has begun to shift once again.
0: Rachna, that was fascinating. And as someone whose honeymoon in Mexico was cancelled by Covid, I wish I could say that I had benefited from that central bank intervention. I just want to pick up from where you ended, the end of the the 20th century. What has happened since then? What are the new things that central banks are doing that are furthest from their core remit?
2: Well, some of the expansion in what it is that central banks do happened as a result of crises. So after the financial crisis of 2007-2009, for example, we saw central banks start to pay attention again to financial stability, which was something they'd neglected in the decades leading up to the crisis.
1: There is some benefits to monetary policy, and I can give instances, but I think the greater benefit is actually to our ability to help maintain financial stability and to be an effective lender of last resort.
2: We also saw during the pandemic, central banks start to play this sort of role as a corporate safety net, making sure that companies could access the lending that they needed to stay alive during lockdowns.
1: That's why the bank is announcing today a comprehensive and timely package of measures to help UK households and businesses bridge across the economic disruption caused by COVID-19.
2: But we've also seen central banks start to think about perhaps more social goods Climate change, for example, and inequality, areas that central bankers, technocratic central bankers, previously used to say very little about.
0: Climate change is the focus of many strands of work currently underway across the European Central Bank.
2: And another area that they're starting to think about is digital currencies. As physical cash goes into decline, they're starting to think about whether to replace that with
0: a digital form of banknotes. Great. And Money Talks listeners um, should know from previous episodes about this shift towards digital currencies. Just going back to those social objectives, what do you think are the forces pushing central banks in that direction?
2: I think there are two things going on. One is that central banks rightly are always sort of scanning the horizon and thinking about risks to the economy and risks to the financial system. So they're thinking about how might climate change affect the health of banks and the health of the economy. They're also thinking about how inequality might affect the way in which their policies feed through to the economy, because the distribution of income and wealth, for example, might affect how interest rate changes affect the transmission of monetary policy through to the wider economy. But another aspect of this is how politicians think of the role of central banks. Both climate change and inequality are serious challenges for politicians. And quite intractable ones, things that involve making difficult choices. And so it starts to seem attractive to put those responsibilities onto central banks and make them think about how to solve these problems as well.
0: And I suppose adding to that list would be the fact that central banks have all these new tools with which they're intervening in in the economy.
2: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So before the financial crisis, central banks mostly relied on interest rates as their main tool. But since then, we've seen them employ a wider array of instruments. For example, many did quantitative easing, which meant large-scale bond purchases. The Bank of Japan, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England directed loans to specific types of borrowers during the pandemic. We've seen a whole range of sort of financial stability-related tools that attach risk weights, for example, to certain types of lending that are done by banks. So, all of a sudden,
0: there are more levers that central banks can start to use to achieve these aims. So, in practice, fulfilling all these objectives just means pulling all those different levers. Now, I want to focus on inequality, those those social causes that central banks have been turning to. When reading your special report, I was really struck by this statistic that came out of um, a database by the Bank for International Settlements, which is a sort of central bankers central bank. So they looked at the speeches made by central bankers and found that before the financial crisis, around 2% of those speeches mentioned inequality, whereas last year it was 10%. That is a very striking increase. What do you think specifically is driving that change? One reason why they're talking so much more about
2: inequality is that central banks shifted to using their asset purchases, their quantitative easing as their main tool, because interest rates were so low, they couldn't really cut them any further. So they relied on hoovering up assets. And one way in which this QE works is by boosting asset prices. It's one of the channels through which it boosts the economy. And that tends to have an effect on inequality, because not everybody in the economy owns assets equally. So the more that central banks did QE, the more they faced accusations that they were sort of stoking inequality and they had to sort of respond to those charges. So I think a lot of those speeches were almost a defense of of the policy that they found themselves having to implement after the financial crisis just in order to revive the economy. But there was a second strand to central bankers thinking on inequality And that was partly a realisation that with inflation low, they had to stoke the economy, they had to keep the economy running hot to get inflation back up. And that could have this side effect of also bringing in marginalised workers back into the workforce. This was particularly um, something that was talked about a lot in America. Perhaps from about 2018 to about 2020, there were research papers suggesting that marginalised workers benefited disproportionately from a long economic expansion. And so a hot economy could help to narrow the gap between black and white people's unemployment
0: rates. Okay. Well, tackling racial inequality sounds like a reasonable thing to try to do. What is the evidence on how effective central bankers can be when, when they try to do that? Well, I think there are a few things going on. One
2: is, what actually is the connection between monetary policy and inequality? So we've just talked about the impact that running the economy hot and having monetary policy loose means on the unemployment wedge between black and white workers. But... There's also this sort of wealth channel that I talked about. So if you run the economy hot, then asset prices stay high, and that benefits the people who hold those assets. And it turns out that white people disproportionately hold assets. The numbers are quite striking on that. So if the Fed keeps its monetary policy loose, that might mean that more black people on the margin are in work, but it might also mean that white people are a whole lot richer because asset prices are so much higher. So you've got these two kind of contradictory effects going on. And there's a paper from the New York Fed that suggests that, in fact, it's the wealth effect that outweighs this employment effect. So this is just a really roundabout way of saying that the economics is really quite confused. OK, so the evidence is
0: mixed. What do you think are the risks of this focus on inequality?
2: One danger is that they start being distracted from the goal that they are actually tasked with achieving. So the basis of their independence was that they would be given independence from meddling politicians, that they have these powers as long as they use them to achieve a particular objective. And the more they stray away from this objective, the more they start to be seen as political actors when in reality they're unelected technocrats. That's quite important. A central bank's success relies on its credibility. Voters, consumers, investors, everyone needs to look at the central bank and know that it's single-mindedly focused on achieving its target. And the minute it starts to stray beyond that, its credibility starts to be damaged. I think that's quite a big risk.
0: Do you think that there are differences across central banks in terms of how willing they are to embrace these new these new goals? Are some more wary than others?
2: I think when it comes to inequality, most central banks are probably a little wary of treading onto fiscal terrain. They see closing these kind of long-standing gaps in the economy as being the job of elected officials and governments rather than their own jobs. But climate change is a much more interesting subject, Lots of them are thinking about it. Many of them are thinking about whether it affects their day to day jobs. Politics plays a really important role here as well. You know, the the subject is probably hottest in America just because climate change is such a politically controversial subject. And we probably saw one of the most dramatic Fed nomination episodes not so long ago, President Biden. ...nominated Sarah Bloom Raskin to the Fed's board as vice chairwoman for supervision... ...but lots of sort of controversy over what she'd said on climate change and stimulus... ...led to sort of the Senate Republicans being opposed to her... ...and in the end she had to withdraw her name.
0: I also watched that drama unfold and was so interested in it... ...that I reached
3: out to Sarah Bloom Raskin herself... I think the American public and the economy really deserves better than what they saw through that nomination process.
0: Ratchna, I'll look forward to hearing your thoughts about that conversation after the break. But first, if you want to read all of Ratchna's special report in full, which I would highly encourage, it is great, you should consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You'll find that link in the notes for this episode.
1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, as I mentioned, in just a second, we are going to hear from Sarah Bloom Raskin. Just in case you missed her nomination battle or you need a refresher, here's who she is. She is no stranger to government service. She was nominated to the Federal Reserve's Board of Governors in 2010.
1: I'm particularly pleased, along with my colleague Senator Sarbanes, to introduce to the committee Sarah Bloom Raskin. We're very proud of her service and we're very proud that she's willing to put her name forward for the Federal Reserve Board of Governors
0: and approved by a vote of 97 to 3 in the Senate. When she was nominated as the Deputy Secretary of the Treasury under President Barack Obama in 2014, the vote to approve her was unanimous.
1: We need people in the administration like Sarah Bloom Raskin. Her background, her education, and her job training all serve to make her particularly well-suited to be the Deputy Secretary.
0: So when President Joe Biden nominated her to serve as the vice chairwoman for banking supervision at the Fed on January 14th of this year, it wasn't exactly headline-making stuff. Even her confirmation hearing in early February was pretty by the book. Banks
3: choose their borrowers. The Fed is not.
0: But later in the month, Senate Republicans objected to her nomination like Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania.
1: The fact that Sarah Raskin has repeatedly, publicly, and forcefully advocated for the Fed to use its supervisory powers as a way to allocate capital away from carbon-intensive industries, that's more than sufficient reason to oppose her nomination, in my view.
0: You know the deal, Democrats then objected to their objections. Here's Sherrod Brown, a Democratic senator from Ohio.
3: Let me be clear, Ms. Broome-Raskin has been the subject of an unrelenting smear campaign in fear-mongering by the ranking member and Republicans, something that's become all too common. They've distorted her words, they've painted her as some sort of radical.
0: The White House then defended her nomination.
3: And I would note just on Sarah Bloom Raskin, since you asked me about her as well, she's one of the most qualified individuals to ever be nominated to the Federal Reserve.
0: This, by the way, was all on the same day. But after Republicans threatened to hold up all of President Biden's nominations to the Fed, Sarah Bloom Raskin withdrew her nomination. And now here she is speaking to me in one of her first big interviews since the controversy. Can we talk about, I guess, the nomination process for you to to join the Federal Reserve Board? Could you just walk us through what happened from your perspective? Oh,
3: <laughs> yeah, not exactly a, a short question, you know, but essentially the, you know, I have been through the nomination and confirmation process two times before, and I can Definitely make comparisons because this one was really unlike any of the prior two for almost completely similar roles. (laughs) So it's a it's kind of a good test case as to what has happened to the process and the process really I think has become quite polarized and has in essence you know became a test case for whether particular risks are deemed political, right? And I think one thing that happened here was that a group of senators thought that looking at climate was something that was a political question, that it wasn't a question of risk. Um, My approach has always been to look at risk. I don't see these issues as I guess there are political dimensions to them, but regardless, it's the role of the Federal Reserve and particularly the vice chair of supervision to be coming into these processes eyes wide open and taking on the risks wherever they're coming from. You can't say these are risks that the the fossil fuel industry doesn't really want you to look at, so don't look at them. That would be a, a gross dereliction of the duty of the vice chair of supervision. So My perspective is and was and always has been that risk needs to be taken on wherever you find it. Now, that doesn't mean that the Federal Reserve necessarily will react in some kind of draconian or shocking way to the risk. But the risk has to be evaluated. It has to be taken on board. And for the fossil fuel industry to say no you know, we're not going to let you look at this risk because it's it's political, is an absolute danger and menace, I think.
0: Were you surprised by these attacks? Why do you think it was so politically contentious to, to mix central banking and, and climate change?
3: It really shouldn't have been. It really shouldn't have been. And I have to say, yes, I was surprised because this is a, again, a set of questions that I think you want to your independent central bank to tackle. Uh, You want them to think this through. Again, it doesn't necessarily mean that there will be regulatory action, but I think there was a fear, frankly, a fear that something horrible could happen from the Fed and that somebody who knew the Fed and knew what to do in face of these risks would take on. So I think it was really, it's regrettable. I think it is an incursion into central bank independence to let particular industries uh, determine what uh, what can be looked at and what can't be looked at from an objective, nonpartisan way. So that, I think, is unfortunate.
0: Do you think that your experience has any broader lessons for the ability of of central banks to pursue this broader
3: set of objectives? Hmm. I think that these objectives are objectives that any credible central bank will want to pursue. I don't think any central bank should take from this experience a message that There are particular risks, particularly as significant as climate is presenting itself to be, that should be taken off the table. I don't think that central banks should be limiting their purview to risks that somehow they deem to be not political. I think we need to and central banks are very well positioned to do this if they truly are independent, is to take on risks that are credible, that have significance to financial stability, and look at them and look at them seriously and decide whether they need to deploy their existing regulatory tools, I should say redeploy them, Towards the mitigation of these risks, you, you just don't want the central bank taking qualified, experienced people with relevant expertise out of contention, and you know i do I worry about the next generation of policymakers. Who have to go through? Who have to go through a nomination and confirmation process? Saying you've got to be kidding! Like, look what they did to Sarah Bloom Raskin. There's like no way I would go through that.
0: Yeah, that does not sound fun. It, it definitely seems as though there is a problem when it comes to combining climate and, and the Fed. Do you think that others like the European Central Bank or, or the Bank of England find it easier to go further? And why do you think that
3: is? To be quite disciplined and precise in in answering that question, you wanna look at what the particular mandates are for those central banks. So it's really I think a question, first of all, of what the legislatures, what the lawmakers are wanting those central banks to do when they create them. And different central banks have different mandates. That might be part of what's going on. There might be different contexts, right? I mean, we do have very powerful special interests in the U.S. uh, that make the pursuit of climate policy, wherever it's pursued, (laughs) quite challenging. And so... It's possible that there's just sort of a different context in the U.S. than there is in other countries. I don't know. It's a a really interesting question, but uh, there is, I think, the benefit here that other central banks are trying to redeploy some of their tools in pursuit of their objectives. As, it, as they relate to climate, and the U.S. can actually look, can learn from that. I mean, can look at those lessons and uh, also decide whether those tools, when tweaked appropriately to fit the U.S. financial sector, could be deployed. And it's fine that the U.S. hasn't been first in it as long as the U.S. gets to it. And that, I think, is what is important. Do you think
0: that there are any limits on on what central banks should be doing. So thinking about this really broad array of things that they're considering, inequality as well as climate change, obviously, but also thinking about technological change and and digital currencies. Are there any areas where you see central banks treading that you're a bit concerned that maybe that's a step too far?
3: Ah, well they should yeah, no, no. Everything should be everything needs to be tied right into their core objectives. The central bank needs to be asking at all times, why are we doing this? How is this relevant to our mandates? Always, always tie it to your reasons for existence. And if at any point you're outside of it, then, hey, that's a red flag. We are not in the right sandbox here. We need to get back to our primary mandate. But what we've talked about today, particularly climate change and the effects of climate change on financial costs and financial markets and the economy more broadly, that is completely within the realm of a central bank monitoring, understanding, and asking the critical questions do we need to do something about this in order to meet our congressionally statutory mandates. And we don't want the lesson to be take your eyes off things that you might deem to be too political. Sorry, you can't do that. You're going to have to take it on board, regardless of how it presents itself. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having
0: me on. Now, Rachna, you have been making the case that Governor Raskin's nomination fight was was one example of the possible political pushback that could come from central banks expanding their remit. What did you make of her assertion that that actually challenging her nomination and stopping the Fed from considering real risks to the financial system was itself a challenge to Fed independence?
2: I think Sarah Blum-Raskin said a lot of sensible and important things there. So it's clear that the job of a central bank is to think about the risks to the economy, to the banks that it supervises, to the financial system as a whole. That's just part of its job. And lots of central banks around the world are conducting what they call stress tests to try and understand what a a big change in policy to counter climate change might mean for the financial institutions that they supervise. But what's interesting is that if you look at the handful of stress tests that have now been completed, most of the stress tests show that the losses to banks as a result of policy to counter climate change are manageable. So banks do end up with losses but they have the capital to withstand those losses. But the more interesting question, perhaps the dilemma for central banks, is whether they should try to use their tools to aid the transition towards net zero. And this is where America and Europe are parting ways because central banks in Europe, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, have these holdings of corporate bonds that they can try and tweak their purchases of for greener purposes.
0: This is actually something that Sarah Bloom-Ruskin mentioned. She mentioned the ECB and the Bank of England, like there were greener pastures over there, pun intended. Do you agree? Is that the case? Well, it's certainly the case that the
2: Bank of England and the European Central Bank, for example, are thinking a lot more about climate change and starting to think about how to use their tools to try to help governments achieve net zero. And it helps that they've got a wider range of tools than the Fed. Specifically, they're thinking about their holdings of corporate bonds, which they bought as part of their quantitative easing schemes. The Bank of England in November said that it would try to encourage greener bonds over the bonds of polluting companies by saying it would pay a higher price for bonds that it deemed to be more climate friendly. The problem is that um, research shows that whenever the central bank buys bonds, There's a kind of wider spillover effect so that even the bonds that it's not buying end up experiencing higher prices. And often the research suggests that the prices of the bonds that it isn't buying are boosted pretty much the same as the prices of the bonds that it is buying. So the the beneficial effect, if you like, is shared whether the central bank is buying those bonds or not. So that's a Long-winded way of saying that it's not really clear that this sort of strategy necessarily has, a, has results.
0: And presumably one other problem is that essentially when the central bank is intervening, it's doing something cyclical, it's doing something temporary. And ultimately, when you're trying to combat climate change, it's a structural problem. It doesn't come and go with the cycle. And so those cyclical tools might not be appropriate.
2: That's exactly right. And just to end the story on the Bank of England there, they said in November that they would tilt their purchases and try to encourage greener companies. But what happened was a few months later, because inflation was surging, they said that they would stop making purchases of corporate bonds. So, you know, three months in, this sort of climate-friendly policy was no more.
0: Speaking of inflation, that is what we will be talking about next week.
2: Indeed it is. Our colleague Simon Rabinovich, who's in Washington, D.C., has been touring various think tanks and organizations talking to former Fed officials and the great and the good in the world of economics to find out what they think about Fed policy and whether it's been too late to tackle
1: inflation. I think the Fed should have been announcing in the first
3: quarter a year ago, we got our forecasts wrong.
1: I think the Fed's Policy right now is mostly right. I think the Fed was unlucky, but they contributed to the bad outcome.
0: They are so enormously behind the curve. So we'll be talking about that next week. I think of all the tours, well, the one in Mexico, Cancun, would have been the best kind. And, and the one you just described would have been the worst kind. <laughs> um, but I am looking forward to chatting with you and Simon about that next week. Thanks, Rachna. Thanks for having me, Sameer. Our thanks, too, to Sarah Bloom Raskin. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. The next episode in our series will come out a week from today on Wednesday, April 27th. Until then, we'd love to know what you think of our show. If you love us, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a favourite moment in central banking history, come on, we know some of you do, you can email us at podcasts at economist.com we won't judge. This week's episode was produced by Rory Galloway. Our sound engineer is Nico Rafast. Our editor is Kim Gittelson. I'm Sameer Keynes. And in London, this is The Economist.